This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. Tonight we come to the third paramita, or in Pali, the parami, that of renunciation, nekama. Renunciation is a funny word, I think, in that it it gets a response from people. In my experience in Japan, uh, renunciation is it's a magical world for word for making Buddhist priests uncomfortable <laughs> because they tend to be pretty well off, and so to to kind of lob that grenade into the room is to bring up something that no one really wants to think about. And then here in the West, in an equivalent room of Buddhist priests, if you say renunciation, you might kind of get laughs because people are so poor that the idea that you would, you know, consciously uh, explore giving things up starts to sound a little comical. But but it's not as simple as what you have and what you don't have. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit tonight. Because we're in this tradition, it's, it's hard to talk about renunciation without talking about the Buddha, right? who seemed to have given up so much. And, and in, in a way that as modern people, we, would, we find so questionable. I am certainly among the people who has thought that was a little bit, uh, maybe he went a little overboard in terms of his relationship with his family and all that. But it's good to remind ourselves that he lived at a time and in a place where it was really all or nothing. You know, As a member of a caste, he couldn't say, well... I'd like to scale down my living space a little bit and maybe I'd like to go back to school and become a veterinarian, right? Either he was going to be royalty and live as royalty in a palace or he was going to cease to exist within the culture. And since he decided that he couldn't do one, he went with the other. He had to break free. I I mention this because renunciation is always about freedom. It's easy to imagine renunciation in terms of a kind of martyrdom or a kind of heroic spiritual effort. And I think when we first start exploring renunciation, it's almost impossible to avoid that kind of trap, and that's okay. I think I've mentioned that when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I stopped sleeping on a bed because I kept reading these references to how Buddhists shouldn't sleep on high beds. And I thought, well, okay. (laughs) And so if people want to use renunciation as a vehicle or as an excuse almost for testing themselves, That's perfectly healthy as just an ordinary human 
endeavor. So much of what needs to happen in this exploration of renunciation is, is based on the question of what do I own? What do I actually own? And then, if you decide that you want to give something up, not to give it up because you, you want to have some sort of noble suffering or because there's some sort of story about how this makes you a more spiritual person or so that other people will look at you and think, oh, you know, she's really deep. But because you're able to look at that thing that you think you own and change your relationship to it, to I don't own this. Simply that. We talked a couple weeks about giving, and I said that you need to be careful about transactional relationships. We think everything is transactional. Everything is a deal. Renunciation is another, another aspect of that. It's, it's dealing with the question of ownership, of property. And wrapped up in that idea of property is the idea of what you think you're entitled to. No one can take that away from me because it's mine. Unless you can reach that point, unless you can make that shift of saying, this just isn't mine, then renunciation is always an act of clinging. It's just an act of clinging to a new story, to a a noble act. Again, it's okay to explore the noble act, but that's not renunciation in its in its deepest sense. We live in an interesting time in relationship to renunciation because until very, very recently, renunciation was understood in terms of people like the Buddha. And what I mean by that is that it was always understood as a spiritual act. To consciously choose not to consume in a particular way or to live in a particular way. No one could understand why you would do that, right? Unless you were making a statement. And that statement was a purely spiritual statement, right? This person is trying to go inside himself. This person is trying to to align with a different set of values. Now we live at a time where we understand that our consumption actually has consequences in the world. And that brings with it potentials and dangers. The potential being that we have a new encouragement to explore renunciation. We have a new encouragement. We have science that is begging us to ask the question of what is really ours which is wonderful. At the same time, though, that knowledge means we get to have a a kind of righteousness if we want to. So we read about how terrible bottled water is, and then we give up bottled water, and not only do we kind of strut around 
in the absence of bottled water, but we see everyone else with it and we think, oh. That greedy person, that self-absorbed, spiritually lacking man with his bottle of water, right? Science is backing us up. Science says, I'm better than you because of these choices. Again, that has nothing to do with whether we should make the choice or not. But it means that now we're offered a new trap. In this generation, we're offered a new trap that our grandparents couldn't have imagined. And it's hard. I think it's very difficult to try to, to live in a conscious way without that righteousness seeping in. It's, it's like mold. You think you could scrub it away, but, but nothing really scrubs mold away, right? It's, it's in the wood. So if you want to explore renunciation, you can, you can look at the effects that things have on others. You can look at the things that are comfortable for you and test them a little bit. So you can decide, I'm not going to sleep on a bed because... Maybe, maybe I'm a little too comfortable there. Maybe I'm demanding comfort in my life. I, I had a friend who used to, his joke always was he would sit in a chair or he'd get in a car and, and he'd say, it's not comfortable enough. Right. And then he'd always laugh about it because he's not saying it's not comfortable. It is comfortable. It's just not adequately comfortable. We do this with so many things. So we can notice this in ourselves and we can start to pull out our own rug a little bit. Camping is great, right? Because you discover that you don't need everything to be so soft. For me, part of the, the power of being in a monastery had nothing to do with the chanting and the meditation and all that. It was that I happened to train in a monastery that didn't have electricity and, and didn't have really much of anything. And that was an experience that I'd never had as a child growing up, what, you know, reading by candlelight and, uh, and pumping water and cleaning out latrines and carrying everything from that down a mountain. That experience was very powerful for me because I realized that everything that I saw as normal in my life was not only unnecessary, but really brand new in the world. Which is to say that if I'm trying to understand myself in a lineage of human beings, and I'm trying to understand my experience in relationship to their experience, I'm failing (laughs) Because in, every time I look at an iPad, right, I'm experiencing the world in a way that's completely different from how people have in the past. It's not a bad way, but it's a new way. And if I'm not careful, I can forget to experience what every single person before me has. So I had this great time on a mountain with bugs and snakes and 
the world kind of trying to attack all the time. And, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. That was one aspect of being a monk that was very powerful. The other aspect, though, was more intentional, which was that I didn't get to choose anything. And that's really what I want to, to pinpoint tonight in terms of renunciation and how we can explore renunciation. One of the, the trickiest things in our lives is the time that we spend negotiating what we want and don't want. Right. It's, it's so subtle. We do it so naturally and so effortlessly that we don't always see that we're choosing things. But we constantly are. And often we're doing it without any uh, real awareness of of the present moment. You know, I use this example over and over and over again. But somebody says, do you want chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream? We say, well, I want chocolate ice cream. Because I always get chocolate ice cream. We don't ask ourselves the question. We don't really look at it. We just say, well, that's, that's me. That's what I do. So much of Zen practice, however, historically, has to do with receiving the question, do you want chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream? And saying, surprise me. Either way is fine. I'm really bad at, this is, this is such a silly thing, I'm really terrible at getting pie out of a pie tin. So whenever I serve up pie, it's a disaster. And one thing that I settled on years and years and years ago is that I will always give the prettiest piece of pie to Tracy, to my wife. This is not because I'm a nice person. It's not because I want her to like me. It's not because it's a little present. Because actually she has no idea. And also she probably doesn't care. I came upon this years ago, though, that if I just decide that for, from now until the rest of time that the best-looking piece of pie goes to Tracy, I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't have to have that little pull of, ooh, that one looks really good. Right? It's decided. It's unemotional. It's complete. I cut it out, I look at it, and say, done. I know which one is which, and I don't have to fight myself, and I don't have to feel some regret Oh, I wish I could have had that piece of pie. I wear the same ridiculous clothes every day. And it's wonderful because I don't have to think about it. I, I sometimes have to make a decision between like blue or brown. And often that's taken care of because I'm doing laundry. So I, have, I just wear the one that's clean. And I wear the same thing most of the year, and I wear it for years until it's gone. And in this way, I'm free. It's very simple, but it's, but it's also very powerful. It really doesn't matter if I like my clothes. 
Because in deciding that I'm going to wear this every day, I've also decided not to ask that question anymore. When we come into a space like this, and we're still, we're still finding our feet here in terms of form, but form has always been an exploration of renunciation. If, if we want to get really nitpicky about things here, then there would be a space where you enter the room. And when you enter the room, you would enter with your left foot or your right foot, depending on what was established about the rest of the borders of the room. That is not to control you. It is not to make you feel insane. It is not because we're just anal retentive. It is because in just the, the tiniest, most mundane actions, your choices are taken away from you. You don't have to decide whether you're going to enter with your left foot or your right foot. You're going to enter with your left foot. And when you sit down, you're going to bow this way, and then you're going to turn this way. You're not going to turn counterclockwise. You're going to turn clockwise. right? On the surface, it's completely meaningless. In fact, at other levels, it's also meaningless. But it's also a giving away. You explore what it is to go beyond your own choices, to go beyond this constant navigation that, like I said, is so unconscious, this constant act of designing your life. You bow just like this, and you step just like this, and the bell is always hit at the same time. Nobody has to bring any creativity to that act at all. In fact, it's really difficult. Right? And, we, and we hit the bell to finish sitting at the same time every day, even though the person who's in charge of that bell is looking at it and saying, well, 7.58 and my legs hurt, and no one will know. I could just shave two minutes off of this thing, but you don't do it. You don't have to make that choice. That choice has been made. In the case of a room like this, you could say that that choice has been made for you, but in fact, that choice is made by you by coming in. One of the most powerful things you can do in your life is to make a decision and then not question it. Make a decision and follow through on it even though it is uncomfortable, and I guarantee if it was at all an interesting decision, at some point it will be uncomfortable to follow through. Make a decision and then don't make exceptions. Make a decision and don't carry an option B. Don't have a, well, but it's Tuesday plan. So this is what I do. In that way, you discover what for me is the heart of renunciation. It's not moral. It's not some sort of great spiritual stance. It's 
It's the first step in understanding what it is to walk in a straight line in your life. If you can do that, if you can choose to follow through on some little mundane, invisible thing every day, then you can also resolve to save all beings and to go beyond all delusion and to enter every Dharma gate and to embody the way. Because that also is a straight line. That's waking up in the morning and knowing the direction in which you're going to go. Through renunciation, through these little choices, you cut the obstacles out of the way. You clear the path every day so that you can walk down that trail and then do it the next day and do it the next day and do it the next day. It's simplifying your life. Again, not in a material way. That's not the point. That's valuable, but that's not the point. It's simplifying your life in terms of how you're navigating it moment to moment. I met a a teacher from San Diego recently. We were talking about renunciation. He he said he has all these little tricks that he, he does. And he said, for example, you go to a restaurant and you're vegetarian and you have $10. So when the waitress comes, you just say, give me something vegetarian that's under $10. Don't, don't look at the menu. Don't go through that. Not because it's bad to look at the menu, but because you've decided that this is what you're trying to figure out. You're letting go of the game. It's a simple thing to do, but it's worth doing. You have to read that scene so that you're not just irritating a server, but... but <laughs> But again, surprise me is a very, it's a very interesting choice to make. And it's one we don't make often. When I order coffee, I get the same thing every time. This isn't an act of renunciation. It's just that I'm, I'm, I'm stuck. So for me, the way to explore it is to go in and get something different every time. Or to say, what's your best thing? Make that. And let go of this idea that I have my drink. But at the same time, if you're the person who goes to a coffee shop and stands there for five minutes rereading the menu every time and saying, oh, I don't know, maybe today I'll do that. You're the person who needs to choose a drink. And get that drink every time. You can even set a date. You can say, this is what I'll do for two months. I'm just going to let go. I'm going to let go of whatever game it is that I'm playing. And see how it simplifies my life. I was speaking with, with another Zen priest who observes Ramadan. As an act of solidarity. 
very, very interesting choice to make. And what she was saying was that, uh, that you don't know until you've observed Ramadan how much time you spend in the day just thinking about what you're going to eat next and going through the cupboards and making those choices and preparing things just so that if you actually take away your meals, your day feels like it's twice as long. She says, says, I never get half as much done as I do during Ramadan, which is this month, by the way. I know, it's the worst possible time for Ramadan if you're someone observing it because the days are so long, right? But, But if you haven't tried that, you know, if, if you haven't made the choice to let go of something like that, then you don't know what's waiting on the other side. You have no idea. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.